All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Tim, one of the pastors here. There's a few people here for the first time. And we are continuing our series in Mark's Gospel accounts. So I want to begin with a mythology. Because in order for us to understand the truth, often we have to set it against falsehoods. And so one of the common mythologies in our modern day is that there's this cosmic battle going on. This cosmic battle between good and evil. Two equal forces that are facing off with our souls in the balance. But I will tell you this is a mythology. This is not true. Stay with me here. For many Christians, this is what they believe. This is what they teach. And it is damaging and it is, it is dangerous if you think that your enemy could prevail at any moment. That there are, there are scales that are tipping back and forth between God and Satan. You're living in fear and living in uncertainty that at any moment, Jesus might lose and Satan might win. So there is a battle, but these forces are not equal. It's not even close. Satan is a cowering, caged dog before our conquering king. And through our conquering king and through the blood of the lamb, we conquer with him. Satan, sin, death, every foe does not stand a chance. We should stand confident and bold in our king. And see Satan for who he is, a caged dog on a short leash. Forgive us if we ever give him too much power or too much influence. Forgive us if we ever sell our God short. Because our king is a lamb slain for our sins. But he is also the lion of Judah who will devour all of his foes. And that is who we're going to see this morning in our text. Amen? So hopefully we'll prove this in our text this morning. So we're also going to get into some of the more lighter passages in the New Testament. Uh, and so, one, I'm going to get into eschatology, the study of the finer thing, or the, the finer things, the, the, the finer things of the, of the last things, the study of how it's all going to end. Because for us to fully understand Satan, we need to know his present and we need to know his future. And so when I said eschatology, all the ears over here just perked up. Because if you're a Reformed Bible student, that's like your, your primary identity, your eschatology, and your view on the sacraments, right? So that's, that's pretty much who you are as a Christian. No, it's not. But uh, these things are important. Why does our eschatology matter? Why does this stuff in Revelation, it's way in the future, why does that matter? Because if we understand what God has revealed to us about what is happening right now in the spiritual realms and what will happen, it is meant to give assurance and confidence to His church. And so we'll address uh, the, the scribes equating Jesus with Satan. We'll address the danger of division and what exactly is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. All in under an hour, Lord willing. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to jump in fairly quickly into Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 beginning in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. 
And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. But truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this morning that you bless the preaching of your word. The proclamation that has gone throughout the ages. The good news of a God who saves sinners. The proclamation that is not dependent on the messenger, but the message. And I pray that the message this morning would pierce our hearts. That we know rightly who Jesus Christ is. That we know rightly who Satan is. That we view our God rightly. That we not harden our hearts toward Him. That His bride would be unified. Bound in love as Satan is bound in chains. That we would be a house that is not divided. That everything we say and do would glorify You. That we would be Your witnesses on earth. And Lord, we anticipate and wait the day of Your return. And we cry expectantly, Come, Lord Jesus, come. But until then, let us be found faithful. And it's in Your name we pray. Amen. Man, so we're picking up in chapter 3. And so I want to begin where we ended last week in verse 20. And so... Are these two accounts related? And again, I've told you many times, the little titles in your Bible, chapter and verses, you often have to ignore them because they're not inspired. They're helpful tools, but as we read, we often tend to stop when we see little headlines. So look at verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. Sound like they go together? Same verb tense here, same words. The family was saying, the scribes were saying. Mark is describing the same situation. He gives what's happening inside the house is what we looked at last week. Now he's giving what happens outside the house. And so that, this is important. And where he places it in the chapter is also important. Because this is going to be built on the next couple weeks. But this passage here in the middle dealing with the work of the Holy Spirit um, and who Satan is juxtaposed against what is going on in Jesus' own family and his spiritual family next week uh, is, is a synthesis in this chapter. So, what we see is last week we looked at the great crowds that were coming from all over Judea and Israel. All over Palestine, north, south, east, and west. 
This is uh, verse 7 and 8 of chapter 3. And so in that crowd, we get Pharisees who are coming down from Jerusalem. They're coming down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem is Mount Zion, 2,400 feet above sea level. Galilee is 600 feet above sea level. level. They're going north, but they're coming down. That's why the, the wording is there. But they themselves are coming to see. Remember last week I said these, these crowds are a mixed bag. They're not all coming to Jesus for the same reasons. The scribes come and we're going to see pretty much with their minds made up. And they've even escalated additionally from where they were at the beginning of chapter 2. If you remember when Jesus heals the uh, paralytic man, the, the, the scribes are communicating amongst themselves. Chapter 2, verse 7. They say, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus perceived what they were saying and responds to them. So they go from talking amongst themselves and saying, uh, there's something off with this guy, maybe he's, he's blaspheming, to now upping the ante again. It's a large jump to say he might be blaspheming, to be he's possessed by a demon. And so you can see their anger stirring up in them. And Mark is great at building the drama from the tension that starts with the scribes and Pharisees. And it begins to build with their murderous intentions in their heart. And now we see it outright coming out of their lips. So here's what the scribes say. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub. Uh, why Beelzebub? Or why Beelzebub and not Beelzebub? Just two versions of the same word. Um, we don't know exactly what this means. It's essentially house of Baal or kingdom of, of Baal. But my favorite spe speculation is Lord of the Dung Heap. Uh, one, one translator translates it. Sure. Uh, sounds good. Also, also true. Whatever it means, that is also true. But I want to get into the first thing they say here. He is possessed by Beelzebul. This is what you do when you don't have a leg to stand on. When something happens right in front of you that you don't agree with but you can't deny, you have to discredit the person right away and, and accuse them of something. Jesus knew what they meant, whether we know what the word means or not. And so there's a reason, like we said last week, there's a reason that he did not allow the demons to speak. Because the demons spoke, they would give credence to what they were accusing him of. Because if the demons went around proclaiming him, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the, Son of God, the people would uh, determine that they were his messengers. But they're not. The disciples were to be his messengers, so the demons are silenced. But they say that he is possessed. And they say that he casts out demons by the power of the prince of demons. So think about this. They're not denying that he casts out demons. A couple chapters ago, they, say him, they, see, they see him heal someone. He's teaching with authority they don't understand. He's teaching, he's, he's healing, he's casting out demons. Hmm, what could he be? Must be a demon, right? Logical conclusion here. It shows how ridiculous their thinking is. They, they don't deny it. They're not even debating the veracity of it. It's true. But now they want to discredit the source. This can't be from God. It has to be from Satan. This is what's at the heart of their error. It makes me think about how many people say, well, if I just saw the miracles, if I just walked with Jesus, if I just heard him teach, I would believe. No, you wouldn't. Dead is dead. Hard hearts are hard hearts. They were there, they witnessed it, and they, they increased in their hatred for him. 
faith is not dependent on what we see with our eyes. Faith is a condition of the heart. And that's what we're, we're getting at here this morning. Their hearts did not want Jesus to be God. They hate Him. And that is the station of the person apart from Christ. Not only do they just kind of dislike Him. If they're honest like the scribes were, they hate Him because it challenges their desire to be God. But Jesus knows what's going on in, in their minds. He knows what's going on in their hearts. They're speaking amongst themselves. And the Pharisees, or excuse me, the, the scribes here, the cowards that they are, are talking about Him. But what does Jesus do? And He called them to Him. Instead of talking about them as they do to Him, He calls them to Him. He talks to their face. He is confident in what He's saying. They grumble and curse about Him and He speaks to them. Now before we get into what He says, notice the difference here. Notice the difference in how you deal with someone you disagree with. The scribes disagreed based on assumption. They had no biblical evidence for this. They had not engaged with Jesus up to this point. They work on assumption. Seems like how people argue today, right? Instead of actually having a conversation, instead of actually addressing someone directly, let's just assume who they are and paint a picture of them based on what we think they are. This is a good lesson to learn from Jesus as we deal with those who we, we differ with. Not being afraid to engage in, in, in a dialogue and, and ask good questions. Because what Jesus does here is He makes them consider their words. They have a very illogical train of thought, and He's going to expose that. But He gets them to consider what they're saying. He doesn't respond the way they do. He knows that they're of Satan. But He doesn't call them what they are. He gets them to, to um, consider what they actually think and uh, to stand by their, their statements. So again, before we get into this, I want us to think about this because people ask me this all the time. How do I respond to my family member who argues this point? How do I respond to someone who I differ with theologically? How do I evangelize with someone who disagrees with me? Or, or how do we uh, apply apologetics? As in many things, Jesus is our example. What does Jesus do here? They say something ridiculous. He asks a question, a clarifying question. So one, we ask good questions. If you're saying something ridiculous, it's not on me to prove your point. You must prove your point. So Jesus asks good questions. We see that all throughout the Gospels. But also Jesus uses very simple language. He speaks to them in parables. So that it is easily understood and so that even a child can understand it. He uses simple terms. Jesus could academically browbeat anybody he wanted to, but he didn't. He spoke to their heart. He spoke to the masses. And there's a lot of wisdom in the way that he responds. Because if you approach someone like this, who you disagree with, who is in error, who has illogical positions, and you get them to defend it, and you get them to deal with it, the average person who has illogical beliefs or is, is an error, has never been confronted patiently, lovingly, directly, never been forced to deal with what they believe. And so this is what Jesus does. And the first thing He does is He asks a question. He asks a question that they should know the answer to. Verse 23, how can Satan cast out Satan? In a sense, 
Are you listening to what you're saying? Do you understand how silly this sounds? How can you wash dishes with dirty water? It's like this doesn't make any sense. How can Satan cast out Satan? But if that wasn't enough, he continues to build his argument here. And he, he refutes them with two parallel parables. So you've got kingdom and you've got house. Both of these in verse 24 and verse 25. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. So these parallel parables, you've got a national organization in a kingdom. And then you've got a, uh, a uh, domestic organization in a house. But the same principles. Whether you are millions of people or you're a family of five, if your house, if your organization is divided, it will not stand. And so let's think about this. This principle, is it true? Do we know this in our own lives? Anyone ever been a member of a team that was divided? A business? A church? A marriage? Where two sides with two opposing views continue in that, how long will that organization stand if the division continues? It won't. The phrase divide and conquer, we know it, and it's, it does prove to be true. If you want to undermine someone, you divide them against themselves. You have them work against each other. This is what Jesus is challenging them with right now. You know this to be true, yet you are so focused in your hatred that your response to me is illogical. Makes no sense. But division is a tool of the enemy, not of, not of Christ. And division is something we are very, very familiar with, especially in our day and age. I think this is important to to think about as everything kind of boils up politically, and we don't get into politics here, but I want you to think about this. Right now, it feels like our nation is divided. It feels like we have two sides who do not agree with one another and who do not want to move closer to one another, and a lot of people are fearful of that. A lot of people are scared what's going to happen to our nation. I hate to break it to you, but America's not going to last forever. It was never meant to. Our hope was never to be in our citizenship here now what, now, what do we do? We pray for our leaders. Absolutely. We pray for our citizens. Absolutely. We pray for churches who, the, the, that the gospel may go out and change hearts and minds. But if America fails tomorrow, oh well. Our citizenship is in an unshakable kingdom that cannot be divided. Amen. And it also feels like our church is divided right now. In many ways, it is. You know, as I was preparing for this passage, uh, most of you may not be up on the debates that are going on within the, uh, the church world, but it does have ramifications for us, so I kind of follow them. And it's very concerning this week when I saw uh, reputable people within the evangelical world, some conservative, some progressive, both claiming that the other is demonic. And as we're going to get into this in just a moment, to be very careful in what we attribute to Satan, as the scribes did, and how heartbreaking this is. But I'll also argue this is necessary for the church. The church always needs to be pruned and refined 
The church always needs to be reformed to the Word of God. We need to be able to stand on truth and refute error, but never to the level of the scribes, kindergarten insults, and calling down divine judgment on brothers and sisters in Christ who may be wrong. And so we need to be very careful not to contribute to that. Jesus says, I will build my church, his, build, his church, his work, and we can rest in that. But every one of us have been in churches that are divided. Every one of us have been in churches that have, that have split or gone over arguments or people separate over petty, stupid things. And as we approach our members' meeting today, this is important to remember that we be a people united, that we be a body united, that we build each other up. That like Jesus does, when we have a disagreement, we talk to the person, we talk directly to the person. And know that unlike the scribes, we are talking to a brother and sister in Christ. Jesus' prayer that he, in, in John 17, the thing he prays for most often is that we be one, the unity within the body, and that's what we desire. And as, as elders, that is something we guard so closely. That his body be pure and undivided. And, and undefiled. And as members, you have a stake in that as well as guarding the purity and unity of the body. Because a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so, Jesus continues here. So he looks at the d- division, and then he, he talks in general in the parables, then he gets real specific here. Verse 26. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. What is he saying? Essentially, if Satan is fighting against Satan, this isn't going to last very long. You shouldn't have to do anything. Sit back, grab the popcorn. Satan's going to destroy himself. What are you worried about if Satan is against Satan? If that's truly the case. But if it's not, if something different is going on here, then what does that mean? Now, trust me, his end is coming. It's not at this moment, and it's not just yet, but it is coming. And Jesus is going to build that up here. So that's what's going on in verse 26. Now, that sets up what verse 27 means. So Satan has risen up against himself and is divided. He cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Satan has a limited dominion. But Satan is not impotent. Look at verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Now this is a great analogy that transcends any age. I mean, no one willingly helps you rob their house. Come on in, take all my stuff. A weak man, strong man, no one's going to do that. Like, this is ridiculous, especially the strong man. I was thinking about this. Um, I love the uh, World's Strongest Man competitions. Anybody else watch those things? I'm just fascinated by guys who are just born massive. Like, so I was thinking about this. How do you bind up a strong man? Brian Shaw won the, the uh, world's strongest man four times in a row. Six foot eight, 420 pounds. Make Aaron, makes Aaron look like a shrimp. <laughs> How do you bind this guy up? Very tightly, a lot of chains. Because you're not going to rob his house easily. There is a strong man, and he is strong, and he does have a house. He's, he's got a kingdom. 
And so, but Jesus is flipping this parable, this parable around. That exactly the opposite is going on here of what you're telling me. This is not a house divided, Satan hide, uh, fighting amongst himself. Satan has a kingdom. Satan has a house. Satan is a strong man. But there is one stronger who can bind him up and plunder his house. We're going to get into those words more in a moment. But is there something more significant going on here? When he says this, yes, he's continuing the parable. But he's also talking about something that is going on in the spiritual realm that we don't understand. This word bound here is used two times in the New Testament. Once in Mark and the other in Revelation chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 20. It's going to be on the screen. So in this, here's where I get into uh, some of the weightier stuff. I'm going to try to make it understandable. I may be going kind of quickly, so I'd rather have you pay attention so this stuff is on the screen. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 20. This is where all the debates on the end times come from. Revelation chapter 20, 1 through 3. We're going to jump right in the thick of it this morning. So when the strong man is bound, does that bring to mind anything else that comes in Scripture? Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil in Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed, him, sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So, we get this picture of Satan being chained and being bound. The strong man being bound. So there's a, there's a helpful picture here. We'll get into this more. We're going to get into Revelation 12 in a minute. But what's going on is prior to this, Satan has access to heaven. And he is deceiving the nations. He goes before God and there's a blindness that is over all the nations except for Israel because God has chosen them and set His love and grace on them. But now Satan is chained. Think about a dog on a chain. You could be the most ferocious dog in the world, but if you have a chain with a stake in the ground, you're very ferocious in your little six-foot radius. As you spin around, bark as loud as you want, you can't get outside of it. He has been chained. He has been bound. He has been limited. He has been tied up in his own home. And he will be that way for a thousand years, so he will no longer deceive the nations. That means there is no longer a haze and a blindness and scales over the eyes of every tongue, tribe, and nation. The gospel is no longer bound by the power of Satan. Jesus binds him so that his work may go out, so the people may believe. And we are standing here, every tongue, tribe, and nation, because Satan no longer has power over salvation. Not that he ever did ultimately. This is what happens when Christ sits on his throne. And so when Jesus says, if you first bind the strong man like is done with Satan, then you can plunder his house. What does it mean to plunder his house? What type of house is Satan's house? It's a house of wickedness and of deception and of evil spirits. Why are all these demons coming out of the woodwork? Why are they being cast out left and right? Because Satan's house is being plundered. Because everything that is valuable to him, his, his minions, 
They are falling on their faces before him, saying, You are the Holy One of God. And that power has been given to the disciples. Look at Luke chapter 10. So this is another parallel passage. gives us another angle to this revelation about what is happening with Satan. There are two terms that are applied to Satan's transition, being bound and being cast out. We'll look at the other one in Revelation 12 in just a moment. So later on, Jesus sends out the 72. Look what happens in Luke chapter 10, verse 17. The 72 returned with, with, with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Past tense, this happened. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. This is what it means to plunder the house of the strong man. That authority has been given to Jesus' disciples and that promise that nothing will hurt you. That is Satan being bound. That is amazing. But there's something even greater. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That Satan is bound is amazing. The disciples are casting out demons. It's amazing. But what is even more incredible is that your name is written in heaven. You have everlasting life because of me. Because I have bound your enemy. He is impotent against you. He will never hurt you. That is the greatest thing. Whether you cast out demons or not, that's not the point. The point is that you are mine. That is why the binding of the strong man is an encouragement to the church. Because he cannot harm you. Because your man is stronger and holds you forevermore. Jesus has plundered the great serpent. And we should rejoice and rest in his work for us. Collective sigh of relief here. Our king has crushed the serpent. Our king has bound the strong man. Our king has chained up the great dragon. And John, in his first epistle, uses this analogy to challenge the people who continue in sin. So if this is true, if this is what Jesus came to do, if this is what he accomplished to destroy the enemy, to destroy sin, how could you continue in sin? Look at 1 John 3.8. Look at the language here and what John appeals to for those who want to continue in sin. He says, Forever, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appears was to destroy the works of the devil. This is an exhortation and a challenge to Christians. Working out of our salvation, because our enemy is destroyed, we walk in righteousness. We walk in holiness. We want to please our God. We don't continue in the works of the world. We don't continue in the works of a kingdom that's end is sure. We continue in righteousness and holiness and goodness, turning from sin. Sanctification is not done driven by guilt. It is done driven by joy and thankfulness and gratefulness because He has paid the price for us. 
He has accomplished what we could not, and so that we can live out joyfully for him. The cross for us means victory over sin. It means victory over death. It means our enemy, Satan, is defeated, and so we can walk in newness of life. We can walk as new men and women. Walk as new creatures. This is the encouragement. Because we know that Satan is now a strong man tied up like Samson with no hair. Just looking pitiful. But I love the way Martin Luther writes in his great hymn to encourage us. We know these words, but meditate on them for a moment. And though this world with devils filled, should be up on the screen. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, but we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Even the demons are subject to us in the name of Jesus Christ. That little word, the name of Jesus Christ, takes all of the power out of Satan. And some people try to wave it like some Harry Potter Christian magic wand. It doesn't work that way. But we stand because Jesus stands against our enemy. Amen? So, I want to connect that before we get into our last part. Look at Revelation 12. gives a different perspective on what was going on in Revelation 20. And so, if you're confused in the book of Revelation, join the club. Uh, the most helpful book I've ever read is William Hendrickson's More Than Conquerors. I recommend it to everybody. It's written so everyone can understand. It's really helpful. Uh, but reading the book of Revelation is helpful understanding it is not a chronological narrative. Revelation is not narrative. We don't, we don't read it like we read the book of Joshua. It is apocalyptic literature that gives you different perspectives on the same events. We call it recapitulation. They're the same events shown from an earthly perspective and heavenly perspective and a spiritual perspective. Look at all the similarities in Revelation 12 to Revelation 20 and understand why what is happening is happening. Revelation 12. Um, let's see, do I want to read earlier? Yeah, I'm going to read earlier. It's not up on your screen. That's why you got to have your Bibles open. All right, so... Um, and a war arose in heaven. This is Revelation 12, verse 7. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Sound familiar? Same thing that's going on in Revelation 20. If you read uh, Revelation chronologically, you're going to be confused because Satan's defeated like four times. And the great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, thrown down, bound up. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. He no longer can come before the throne of God and accuse the saints. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. It is exhausting. Every day, day and night, going before God. Can I have them now, God? Can I have them now, God? They won't really trust you. But he's been thrown down, and they have been conquered. 
excuse me, and they, being the saints, have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, you and who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows that his time is short. Christians, this is where we stand. We stand in confidence. Rejoice, you have conquered in Christ. And even though Satan has been thrown down, his time is short. And his power is limited. And it is not over you. Because you have a king who has bound that strong man. Helpful? All right, now we've got to get to the light topic of the exhortation to the scribes and what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. All right, let's deal with this one. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, amen here. Truly. All right, no more parables. I'm speaking plainly. All sin will be forgiven the children of man. So let's, let's break this down before we get into what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. All sins. Remember, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Remember, we can't forget everything we've just looked at. Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Mark. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe. All sins are forgiven for those who repent and believe. All sins will be forgiven and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, wait a second. How do we contrast blasphemies uttered with blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Every word in Scripture is important. Blasphemies uttered. Words that come out of your mouth that defame God, that revile God, even curse God, irreverently speaking about Him, even that will be forgiven. And so, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. What makes it so egregious? Let's think about what we've seen so far. From the moment of Jesus' baptism, his ministry is marked by the work of the Holy Spirit. He is carried on in his power that he does miracles is by the power of God. The same, the same power agent of God, God himself, who spoke the world into existence. That same power marked all of Jesus' ministry and all of Jesus' life. His spirit. And what did the scribes do? They took the power that marked his entire ministry and attributed a power of God to a power of Satan. What can be forgiven? When you blaspheme out of your mouth and you say things against God, even that can be forgiven. But when you blaspheme in your heart, when you have said in your heart that good is evil and evil is good, Isaiah warned against this, Isaiah 5.20, if you are so warped, woe to you, those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, if you are so warped that you are upside down, that you don't know good from evil, that you are willing to, to, uh, to call goodness personified demon possession. Not that God can't save you, but that God has given you over to a reprobate mind. You are so warped, as Paul tells us in Romans 1. Saying that Jesus is controlled by Satan is as far away from the truth as you can get. There is no truth in you. There's absolute proof that the Holy Spirit does not reside in you. He can save from all kinds of sins and blasphemies. Peter denies Christ three times. 
restored. Paul, standing by, holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen, the first martyr, restored. John Mark, who cowardly runs away from ministry because of his fear of how people will respond, restored. And each one of us in here, all of our egregious sins in Christ restored. But there is a hardness of heart that does not know good from evil, that is willing to say, this is Satan, not Christ. Where there is no redemption. There is no forgiveness. Because this is not a sentiment spoken in ignorance. This is not a sentiment spoken in, in immaturity. But these are scribes in full witness of Jesus doing miracles, proclaiming the message of God, and denying Him. Very similar to the apostasy we're going to cover in Hebrews. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to keep plugging Hebrews uh, forever. Uh, but Hebrews is, is, is going to be a great study, but it's very helpful in understanding these things. So Hebrews kind of gives us a parallel account here. Chapter 6, verse 4 through 6. Similar language. For it is impossible... No forgiveness here. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gifts, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, they've been in the church, they've, they've seen the uh, sacraments, they've heard the Word of God, they've, they've, they've tasted of the elements, and they have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they have crucified once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him in contempt. There is no forgiveness to those who say, yeah, Christ died for me. Christ died. It's not good enough. They crucify Him again, holding Him in contempt. There is no forgiveness for those who hear and understand and partake and still reject it. There's one more in chapter 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately, this is chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there, is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If you continue in sin, if you see the work of Jesus Christ in, in redemption and you still want to sin, you are, his you are his adversary and you are set for destruction. These are the scribes. They want to go on in their sinful, hard hearts, keeping every iota of the law, but breaking every one of them in, in their heart. They are his adversary. And we're seeing so much of this today. So many people running away from the church and saying, I no longer believe that. That can't be true. As John says, they go out from us because they were never of us. But they are crucifying Christ twice. Not, not literally, but figuratively. And so this is terrifying. Because when people read this, there's an unforgivable sin. But it is also a great encouragement. Do not forget verse 28. Back in Mark chapter 3. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter. Every one of us have sinned. Every one of us has blasphemed. All our sins will be forgiven. This is meant to encourage the church. 
Our God is gracious. All of your sins, all of my sins in Christ are forgiven. Amen? Grace greater than all of our sins. Our God forgives sins, all of them, every one. That is meant to give us encouragement. Not only does he bind our enemy, but he takes on our sin in him. This is meant to be an encouragement to believers. None of your sins are too great. The reason we rally around the cross and is the center of everything we do is that means that is our restoration to God the Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is our new life. That is our identity and nothing Satan or any of his forces or our own flesh or our own sin can do to reverse what Christ has done on the cross. Amen. All sins will be forgiven. Because of our perfect spotless lamb. Lots of that in Hebrews. But one final thought here. I know what a lot of you are thinking. I've had this conversation many times. How do I know if I've committed the eternal sin? How do I know if I've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? I have good news for you. If you're worried about that, that's a good thing. If you're worried about... I don't want to be separated from God. I want to make sure that I'm forgiven. That's a good thing. I would be very worried if you're not, if you're not worried about, nope, I've, I'm, I'm good. I'm not worried about me blaspheming the Holy Spirit at all. I'd be worried that your conscience is too seared. If you know your own sinfulness and you know God's own holiness and you know your own propensity to hate Him with every fiber of your being, you should be concerned. And it's a good thing because the Spirit is working in you. And I want to leave you with this exhortation from 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you are worried, can my sins be forgiven? If you are wonder, worried, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Ask Him. He is good. He is gracious. He is just and faithful to forgive sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you will not be like those in verse 30 who say that He has an unclean spirit. This is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Your heart hates God so much that you call Him evil. So as we close, just a couple things to think about. Hopefully, this was helpful this morning that you know, what we know about Christ and Satan determines how we live the Christian life. We have victory from fear. We have victory from our enemies. We know the end of Satan. We know whose we are and what he's done. Amen? And if we stand in the work of Christ, we don't go on sinning. We don't contribute to division. We guard against the division and the, and the Deception of our enemy. Because we can stand firm and boldly in Christ. And finally, praise God for the forgiveness of sins. I want, to, I want us to leave on that note. And if you are unsure about your sins, I want to remind you again, ask Him. He is faithful. If you know that your sins are forgiven in Christ, you can say with me, Amen. He is faithful. Amen. He is faithful. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. High and lifted up. 
holy, almighty God. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We can just skim the surface of what you were doing to redeem your people. It is hard to wrestle with the deep things of your word, the things that tug against our flesh and and our fears and our weaknesses. Lord, I pray that you strengthen and encourage your people. You help them stand boldly in you. You remind them of your finished work on the cross. You remind them of the fate of their enemy. His doom is sure. His time is short. But ours is forever. Lord, I pray that you sanctify your church. You purify and unite your church. That it, be, that it would stand firm in you on the foundation, the rock of Jesus Christ. All else is sinking sand. That you would guard against division in marriages. Guard against division in churches in this nation. Lord, we just uh, pray for our leaders, those who are hurting, those who are struggling. Lord, the world offers lots of answers, but the only answer is that God saves sinners. It's that Jesus Christ has paid the price so that we may be his forevermore. We may live forever with him. What an amazing message of the gospel we have. Thank you for your spirit. Teaches us, guides us, enlightens us, and preserves us for the day of your return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.